Back in the 1920s and uh, 1930s, there was a nutritionist by the name of Victor, Victor Lander. And he was famous for teaching, uh, I don't know if this is out of date since then, but at the time he said this, 90% of the diseases known to man are caused by cheap foodstuffs. He would go on to uh, pronounce five words that since then have been on the minds and hearts and tongues of moms everywhere. The phrase is this, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. Something my mom used to tell me, something my kid's mom still tells me. You are what you eat. Coined by the nutritionist Victor in the 20s and 30s, used by people everywhere. It's this idea that what goes into you actually forms who you are. And it forms you on a number of levels. And this is true. The reason I pick on this phrase is because it's true on so many levels. We're picking on food and nutrition but there's a sense in which that is true about just about every part of you. Not just what you consume, not just what you eat, but what you think about, but what you do, about what's been done to you, about the things that you value, about the things that you put first, about the things that you give your allegiance to, the things that you continually practice and enjoy. Over time, those things form you. And it might not be overnight, It's little by little. It's the ruthless regularity of our spirituality that has the deepest impact on who you are. For example, you could go to McDonald's right now, eat a cheeseburger. Nothing probably will happen to you. But if you were to eat a cheeseburger every day, every meal of every day for 30 years, you might feel a little bit of an effect on your body, maybe even on your emotions and your soul. In other words, just because it's not immediate does not mean that it's not impactful. In fact, some of the most significant things about you took root years ago, have been taking root over long periods of time through your habits, your actions, your behaviors, your desires, repeated actions. Little by little, over time, they have begun to form you. I say this because for those of us that might be in the room or outside of the room who say, "Uh, this is cool, spirituality and everything, Uh, that's cool for you but not for me, there's just simply no way to do that. You are a spiritual being. You cannot opt out of the spiritual life. You are already in it. That's what I think Paul is saying in that first line. Don't you know that in a race everybody's running? But then he goes on to say, but only one will receive the prize. I love how Paul is such a, he he uses analogies, especially from uh, athletics, sports, plant life, agriculture, buildings. In this case, he uses a runner. And he uses a visual that everybody in that day would have understood. He, He compares our spirituality to athletics. And he says, hey, everybody is in this race. Everybody is spiritual. Everybody's going somewhere. Everybody is being formed. You can't just opt out of the spiritual life. You can't say, I'm not spiritual. I'm not forming. None of that is happening to me. Everybody is being formed spiritually on some level. Then he goes on to carry on that analogy to say, but only one is going to receive the prize. In other words, everybody is being formed spiritually, but not everybody is being formed well. And not necessarily are you being formed well all the time. 
All of us are being formed at every single moment by the things that we do, enjoy, give our attention to, our thought life to, our actions and habits to. We're just not always being formed well. And there might even be some people in the room who aren't just not being formed well, but you, you have been in that place for a long time. You might describe yourself as stuck. Maybe this is a huge burden on your life. You've got habits, behavioral patterns, thought patterns, ideas in your life, actions, things that have been set in stone a long time ago that you just can't break. It might be addictions, it might be your thought life, it might be your emotions, it might just be old habits that you can't break, and you would describe yourself as stuck. And perhaps asking the question, why are we the way that we are? Why, are, why am I stuck? Or maybe even more deeply, why can't I change? Why can't I change who I am and what I do. And this comes, I think, from two reasons. The first one, the most fundamental reason, is that for human beings everywhere, the reason that we're stuck, if I can continue to use that vernacular, that paraphrase, is that we don't know God. Or to put it in Paul's terminology, we have been alienated from God. And when you're alienated from God, you're alienated from God's life, you choose to live your own life, and the circumstances of that, the Bible refers to as sin. In other words, sin isn't like not doing something on this arbitrary checklist that a, an employer gave you or your Sunday school teacher. Sin is any time that you decide that what God says is right and good is not right and good. You decide to take your life into your own hands. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 18, people that live apart from God, they live in the futility of their minds. Their ideas aren't good. They can't be good all the time. They're darkened in their understanding, and there's a last line in there where he says, they are alienated from the life of God. You're not just alienated from God, but you're alienated from his life-giving power. Then he goes on to say, due to the hardness of of their hearts. Why can't people change? Well, one of the most fundamental reasons is they are living a life apart from God. Their hearts have been darkened as a result of that. The solution for that is to be born again, right? Like we've been talking about for the past couple weeks, where our hearts are renewed in the image after uh, our maker. Whereas Jesus says in John chapter 3, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Light shines in a dark place, 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Shines into the dark places of your heart. All of a sudden, you have understanding. Your eyes are opened. You don't just see God. You don't just believe in God, but you love his things. So that might be for some of you. You just don't know God. That's an easy fix. Cry out to him right now. I want to know you. Reveal yourself to me. That's what Jesus taught us to pray in the first line of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in the heavens, or who is in close proximity, hallowed be your name. Or another way of paraphrasing that is, God in the heavens, our Father who is close by, reveal yourself. You could pray that right now. He'll do it. But there might be a number of you in this room who are Christians already. And you would also say to me, I'm stuck. I've been following Christ for eight months or eight years, or three decades, and I still get caught in these patterns. Some of you might say, I've been following Jesus for decades, 
and my life is the same as it was when I first got born again. There's no forward movement, forward more mobility. There's no change. There's no maturity. I'm the same person. Some of you might say, I'm, I think I'm a Christian, but I'm the same person I've always been. Why is that? Why can't I change? The reason for you might be just a little bit different. Your heart has been changed, maybe, by the power of the Holy Spirit, but there's something else amiss. I want to redirect your attention to Paul again, but in the letter to the Romans. This is an unbelievable passage. We only have one verse up there, but if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me there. If you don't have a Bible, I'll read it out loud for you, but I want to start reading in verse 15. This is incredible. Listen to this. Now, keep in mind, Paul is likely writing this as a believer about his experience as a follower of Jesus. He's not futile in his understanding. He's not alienated from God. He's a Christian. Listen to, listen to this and see if you ever resonate with this. Verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Anybody ever do that? Verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse 18, listen to this. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. You hear what Paul's saying? He's a believer. He's a spirit-filled Christian, a follower of Christ, saying, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do God's will. I just don't have the ability to carry it out. How many of you would look at that and say, yeah, I get that. Sure. I want to do the right thing, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I have a good heart. I've been born again. I just can't beat this habit. I just can't destroy this addiction. I just can't do the right thing over and over and over and over. I just can't be a good parent. I just can't be a good spouse. I just can't be faithful in my job. I just can't remember. On and on and on. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. What Paul is doing right here is he's describing the battle inside every Christian in this room. A battle with the flesh. Now, when Paul speaks about the flesh, he's not just talking about your knuckles, your hands, your flesh and, and bone, although it includes that. He's speaking about something very broad. The flesh refers to an, an, your, an instrument of various actions and expressions, or more broadly put, let, let's talk about it this way. The flesh is your range of natural human impulses, abilities, and resources, which clearly includes your body. You think something, it, it happens because you say it. You desire something, it happens because you do it. As Dallas Willard would once put it, the body is like the, 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 uh, the power pack of the human willpower. It's where you carry out what you want. It is your little kingdom, the flesh, your range of of natural human impulses, abilities, and resources. Uh, so that, that means the flesh isn't necessarily bad. It's a part of who you are. It's what God made you to have. What's bad is what Paul would later refer to as the sin in the flesh. 
It is when you rely on your own human resources, you rely on your own human abilities, and you reject God in the process. So for some people, the reason we can't get unstuck, the reason we continue to do the things that we don't want to do is because our heart has not been born again. We have been alienated from God. But for Paul, for Christians, the reason we can't change, the reason that we get stuck, the reason we can't uh, do what we want to do is not because we don't have a brand new heart. We do. It's because our habits have not caught up with our heart. It's because our flesh has not been trained to be aligned with the heart. This is what Jesus would later say in Matthew. The spirit or the heart is willing. It's the flesh that's weak. So for those of you that are looking at your life and you're saying, even though we might be professionals at projecting to people around us an Instagram highlight reel of how good our lives are. This could even bleed into our spirituality. That things are okay. I'm doing great. I'm fine. Some of us in this room, if we were to take an honest inventory of our souls and hearts, would say, I'm in a place that I don't want to be. I do love God, or maybe you don't. Maybe you don't, maybe you don't even know if you do. But you would, you would definitely say, I, I can't change my life. I feel stuck. I'm not where I want to be, and I want transformation. I want something new. I want breakthrough in my life. What is the solution? Well, whether it's you being alienated from God, one, or your habits not catching up with your heart, two, the solution for all of you is the same. Only Jesus Christ can change your life. The only thing that you need in this life is for the power and presence of Jesus Christ to touch down on the sphere of your life and to turn it inside out. I want to give you three passages from Romans that are going to highlight how Christ does this. This is unbelievable. I'm going to start with Romans chapter 3. Paul talks about the law of Moses. Now, it comes from the Old Testament. That's that law, that moral code. Some of us know it as the Ten Commandments, but it really stands for everything that God says that's right and wrong. Uh, we can think of it as good rules and regulations. Now, Paul says right here, the law of Moses, or the rules and regulations, were unable to save us because, not because the, the law was bad, Listen to what he says, because of the weakness of our sinful nature, or literally because of the weakness of our flesh. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So God did what the law could not do. God did what your rules and regulations could not do. God did what your group think could not do. God did what you could not do by pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. God did what an adrenaline rush could not do. God did what punishment and reward could not do. God did what we could not do. What did he do? He set his own son in a body like we have. Our weakness was found in the flesh, in the body, so God sends his son in a body. John chapter 1, verse 14, we saw him. The word of God made flesh. He dwelt among us. I love how the message translation puts that. The word of God became flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. He didn't just become like you and flesh and blood and thought and uh, soul and mind and tendencies and actions and habits and behaviors. 
but he moved into the weakness of your own neighborhood. He came close, is what that means. Why is it so significant that, that God put on a body? Because he came to do what we could not do in that same body. I remember some time ago, I was at the gym, and I was trying to lift something that I should not have been lifting. And this big dude, when I say big, I mean like I couldn't see his neck. He just had shoulders and a head. Or maybe it was traps, or I don't know what it was, but he had no neck. Like he couldn't, he didn't even turn. And his arms couldn't even, he couldn't even touch the sides of his legs. He just walked around like this. And he started pointing out, like, hey, you're doing that wrong, doing this wrong, doing this wrong. Stop it, stop it, do this, do that. And I said, okay, because you have no neck, I'm going to do everything that you say. A lot of people give advice in the gym. I don't listen to any of them, because some of them don't look like they work out. Some of them have had hip replacements, but this guy had no neck. And so I said, I'm going to listen to you. Do you understand that this is what God is doing? Uh, differently than that, but like in a same, similar way. God is saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come into this broken, trashed up world. I'm going to wear what you have been wearing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to adopt a mind. I'm going to put on a body. I'm going to suffer through the difficulties. I'm going to I'm going to get used to your tendencies and habits and behaviors, and I'm going to win. So God comes in a human body. He puts on flesh and dwells among us. Except, here's the difference between God and us. Hebrews tells us that Jesus knew no sin. So he put on a body, and he did it right. Paul goes on to say, and in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us, by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So God doesn't just, God, Jesus doesn't just lead a righteous life in, in a body. He doesn't just do what no human being has ever been able to do, but then he dies. He offers that body as an act of love for humanity and glory to his father. Why did he do that? What's that? What did that accomplish? Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 6, second verse. We know that our old sinful selves, this is for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. The Bible goes on to say that this is not just some intellectual transaction. It's not just like, a, I believe in a few doctrines about God, nor is it a list of things that you do. Like, I've attended church. It is a complete exchange of lives. When you come to faith in Christ, when you're born again, you're essentially saying, I give up my life and I adopt Christ's instead. Christ's life through me. Uh, Paul is so visual and so vivid about this that he's adopted the language of dying to yourself or crucifying yourself. This is what he says in Romans 6.6. 6. We know that our old selves were crucified with Christ. Why? So that sin might lose its power over our lives. We, listen to this, we are no longer slaves to sin. When a person is crucified with Christ, when you're born again, you start following Christ, you're indwelt by the spirit of the living God, God makes a promise to you. He says sin doesn't go away, but here's the promise that you can bank on. It shall no longer dominate you. Paul would go on in the rest of uh, Romans to say, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Now he's giving you permission. 
Saying you've already gotten the power to defeat sin in your life because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now it is up to you to not permit sin to reign in your life. Don't let it. Don't give it any, don't give it any leverage. Now that assumes a couple things. One, that power has been broken in your life. Two, that you can still let it run you over. Do not let sin reign. That means, by default, we can let it reign. But we don't have to. We are no longer meant to be slaves to false thinking. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. This is the last one. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells in you, you're in for a party. That's not what it says, but it should. It says... If the Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, it's not just Jesus' resurrection. It says, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So no longer are you condemned to live a life of slavery to sin, but now you have all the power from heaven required to walk in newness of life. It's all been done for you. Everything that you need to change has been given to you or enacted for you by Jesus Christ, your Savior. There's no longer any excuse to live in shame or defeat. There's no longer any reason to live in self-doubt. There's no longer any reason to continue to stumble and to, be, uh, 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 and, and to fail. Now, we will stumble. There will be failure. All I'm saying is we don't have to stay there, and we don't have to be ashamed of it. We can continue to walk into newness of life. For a lot of us, it's going to be stumbling in and out of failure into newness of life. That's okay. There's grace for that. The same God who bestowed his grace upon you also gave his Holy Spirit to change you. And here's what I want us to understand. Christ transforms the whole person. He transforms the mind. He transforms the heart. He also transforms the body, the flesh, the habits, the actions. We just have to respond to it. Everything that you've ever needed has been offered to you in Jesus Christ. We just need to respond to it. And some of us might be here, we're in, we're in category two, right? We've been born again, but we just can't stop doing stuff. We just can't love people. We're still the same irritable, mean people that we were 10 years ago. Uh, we can't stop lying. We can't stop cutting corners. We can't stop bulldozing people. Whatever, whatever your, uh, your setback is, perhaps you would say in an honest inventory of your life, I love Christ with all of my heart, but my habits have not caught up to my heart. What do I do? I want to give you a way forward from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is where I'm going to bring it back full circle to the text. You'll notice... Actually, forget what I've noticed. Let's just get into it. Here's a way forward. I'm going to give you three things. Paul's going to give us three things here. He's going to give us a vision. He's going to give us an intention. He's going to give us a means. You want to know about the pathway of breaking through difficulties in your life? Listen to Paul. Here's where the vision comes in. He says in verse... uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. <clears throat> After he just got done saying, hey, everyone in a race runs, just not everybody's winning. Look at, look at the next part of the verse. 
So run so that you can obtain it. Run like you're gonna, you're gonna win the race. Obtain what, Paul? He would later on go on to say in verse 25, that which is imperishable. People that run marathons, they have, they have, a, they have a wreath. Uh, back then, I guess they had wreaths. They have a wreath to, to win. They have a trophy. But even that is perishable. You have something imperishable. Look ahead to what has been given to you in Christ. Run for it. What's Paul doing? He's giving us a vision for how our lives could be better if we followed Jesus Christ. And this is what some of us are missing today. We have no idea why following Jesus is better. We just do it because that's what our family did. We just do it because that's what our friends at church did. We just do it because that's the traditional thing to do. We just did it because we think maybe if we get a little bit religious, things will be, I don't know, whatever they will be. We don't have a, we don't have a gripping, compelling vision that if I follow Jesus Christ, my life is going to be better than anything I could imagine. And Paul is telling people that are listening, hey, you need a vision. Tran uh, transformation and change only comes to people who know, who feel, who are compelled that following Jesus is a better way to live. Do you not have that yet? That might be why you hate Lent. Because all Lent is for you is a list of rules and regulations and things that you're not supposed to do. I would hate it too. That's maybe why you hate all spiritual practices and, and spiritual disciplines. Reading the Bible, prayer, church attendance, giving, all of that stuff. Reading the Bible. Because you have not been gripped by something deeper than the practice itself. That Christ is present in this thing. And that he is by the power of his Holy Spirit transforming me. How could I not posture myself to experience more of him? For those of you that are only just doing rules because you're all about the rules, that's not going to change you. That's what Paul would say to the Colossian church. He said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, these rules might seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Why would rules and regulations and practices not conquer your evil desires? Because those are in your heart. And it's out of the overflow of your heart that your body moves and speaks, Jesus would say. Jesus came to conquer the heart. Some of you, your hearts have only been conquered by your own will, by your own sin, by your own agenda, by your own uh, desire for life. And Christ is king. And he loves you too much to let you rule over your own heart. He offers you the invitation now. Let me be king over your heart. Give it to me right now. Let me rule and reign in your life today. And I will change you from the inside out. His invitation is the same as it was thousands of years ago. Be born again. And if you're born again, the next thing that you should do is to feast on the words and life of Jesus until... You just can't not have enough of them. How do you get a vision for the kingdom of God in Christ? You're born again, and then you read, and you study, and you spend time with Jesus until that's, that's all you can think about, until you just can't live without him. Second thing that you need is an intention. 
There's a lot of people with an intention, uh, with a vision for how life could be better that have no intention to change, right? There's people with addictions, with uh, uh, alcohol and drug addictions that intuitively know that they're destroying their bodies and have no intention of changing. If people in my family, they're not with me anymore, but they drank themselves to death. I had one relative who drank his entire set of kidneys away. He had a quarter of a kidney left, and his son donated his kidney to him, and he still continued to drink. He knew what he was doing. Having a vision is not enough. There must come a point in your life where you say, I, know, I, I don't just see how my life could be better. I can't not have it. This is also what Paul says in the rest of this passage. When he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. You see that? You see that dogged intention in Paul? I don't just have a vision for why Jesus is better. I am running for him. And I'm not running aimlessly. I know where I'm going. I don't box as one beating the air. I'm not running aimlessly. So how does Paul run? He goes on to say, run so that you may obtain the outcome. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, I love how Paul expounds on, his, his, on this pathway of running. He goes on to say, it's not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm running like it's mine. And I'm doing it because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. I'm running to make him my own because he's already made me his own. Brothers, sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own yet. But one thing I do, I'm forgetting what lies behind me. Some of you need to do that right now. You've got a whole litany, a laundry list of things that have, have just dug their talons in your heart and your mind and your soul. You are constantly reminded of how many times you failed, how you have not lived up to certain standards, whether they have been standards set by you, your family, your significant other, or people in your life, or a standard that nobody's made up but the devil has pushed upon you. You need to let that go right now in Jesus' name. You need to release those lies. Why? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, what lies in front of us. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what happened before and straining on towards what's in front of you. We need an intention. We need to see that vision, one, that life is better if I follow Jesus. It doesn't mean you won't suffer. It doesn't mean you won't encounter setbacks or challenges. But at the end of the day, it's going to be better than anything else you could have imagined. We need a vision. Two, we need an intention for people to actually get out of their seat today and say, I choose to follow Christ. But then we need one more thing. We need a means Paul speaks about this means at the end of this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26. He says, but I, I discipline my body. I bring it under my control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I discipline my body. 
I have a means. How many of you know people who have a vision for how life could be better, have the intention to carry it out, but don't have the means? And so they continue to repeat those habits over and over and over. Could be a person that just keeps living out a certain life, saying the wrong things, doing the wrong things. It could be an addiction. How many of you know people who didn't just have a vision for how life could be better, didn't just have the intention to change, but perhaps it was an alcohol addiction, stepped into a 12-step program? They had a means, not just good intentions. The world is full of people with good intentions who are still despairing. What Paul tells us right here is that you need a vision for how life could be better that would captivate your heart. If necessary, be born again. You need an intention to follow Jesus and what he's calling you to do, and you need the practices or means that will train your flesh to realign with your heart. Hence, Lent. I want to bring it full circle to tell you that this whole sermon is called Spiritual Disciplines. And yet this is the first time I'm speaking about it and I'm almost done. Do you know why? Thank you. <laughs> I wanted... It's, it's going to be easy for a lot of us to just do something. I wanted to stress why the first two are so important. A heart that's been entranced with a vision of Christ, the intention to follow him, then the spiritual disciplines. Do you see why those first two are important? Some of you, maybe you've been doing Lent your whole life. Or maybe it's not Lent. Maybe you've just been going to church, you've been doing religious activities, and it hasn't changed you, and you actually feel like you're reversing course. You're getting angry at God. You're getting a little bitter. You're a little more religious, but you're a little less joyful. Why is that the case? Because practice without passion is oppression. You can do all the right things you want, but if your heart has not been changed, if it has not been entranced by a good king, you're just depressing yourself. We need a vision, we need an intention, we need a means. I want to fast track right now and actually ask the worship band to come out uh, with Robert and talk very quickly about the means offered at Lent. We're in the series called Into the Wilderness where we're talking about Lent. I want to give you three ways that the Christians historically have detoxed, have practiced their faith. One is, as I said, by detoxing, by putting something away. Traditionally, this has been fasting, prayer, or generosity. Or if we're speaking about detoxing, what is fasting but putting away our cravings? What is prayer but not, not necessarily praying with words but praying with silence? What is that? Detoxing from noise. And what is generosity but detoxing from our stuff, our material resources? This is what the church has done for centuries. And you might be called by the Holy Spirit today to do that. Ash Wednesday was uh, last Wednesday, but we don't have a, serv a service on Wednesday. So we're going to start it today. For all of those of you that, that feel that God is calling you into something deeper, to change and transformation, I want to invite you to ask yourself, what is God calling you to detox from? And it might be a craving, not necessarily food, 
It could be food at a certain part of the week. It could be a type of food. It could be meat. That's what some people do. It could be coffee. It could be alcohol. It could be uh, smoothies. I don't know what it is. The, the thing that you fast from is not important. What matters is that God is ministering to you and calling you to give up something that you are starting to rely on. Or maybe it's not a craving. Maybe it's not something that you're fasting from. Maybe it's noise. Some people will fast from social media, the internet, people. Of course, you can't fast from people for too long, but maybe it'll be blocks of time where you just withdraw in silence. Maybe it's turning your phone off. Maybe it's practicing the Sabbath. Some people will fast from their things, material resources, living more of a simple life. Maybe you'll give some of your stuff away, give your money away, give your things away, live more simply. Whatever it is, the task of the Christian today is to ask God, what are you calling me to give up? But remember, it's not just giving things up for the sake of giving things up, but for opening up space for Christ who transforms a human personality to step in. And so, here's a follow-up question for you. After you've asked, God, what do you want me to release during this season? Begin listening to how God wants to fill those voids with himself. Traditionally, the church practices Lent from March 5th through April 18th. So, for all of you that desire to do that, you can join me in the rest of the people in the church in doing that. You don't have to. Nobody's keeping tabs on you. We don't have your GPS locations or your thought life. This is really just between you and God. But for those of you that want to step into something like this, I invite you to start by asking God two questions. God, what do you want me to release during this season? And then begin listening for the rest of this season, March 10th through April 18th, to how God wants to fill those voids with himself. And let's be captivated by a deep vision that Christ is better, an intention to follow him wherever he leads us, and the means, whether that's fasting, prayer, or generosity, to open up space in our lives for transformation. We're going to sing today and respond through worship, musical worship. And for those of you that want to kneel, there's carpets at the front. You can carve out some solitude right now. You can go off to different parts of the room, be by yourself. You can turn to one another and pray. You can take of the sacraments if you're a follower of Jesus. Take the bread, dip it into the cup, and remind yourself of the finished work of Christ on the cross who did everything that you need to walk in liberty and freedom today. We'll also have uh, prayer teams to both sides who are here to pray for transformation to take deep root in your life right now. I want you to take advantage of that. Whatever you do, let's spend time with Jesus and let's ask him for renewal in our church. Amen?